Thanks everyone uh, for joining this morning. Um, Lynn reached out to me, what was it, Lynn, about a month ago, and asked if I was, would do an open forum um, to talk about uh, something in aviation. And I said, well, I, I'm happy to do it. I don't know what kind of interest there would be in that. <laughs> and she said that, uh, she said, well, you know, just maybe um, talk about an approach. And uh, what it got me thinking about was we have an extraordinary record in aviation. Um, last year, our commercial fatality rate in aviation was zero. No people died in the United States on commercial airlines. And if you draw the comparison to other modes of transportation, as a nation, we accept something like 35,000 people dying on our nation's highways every day, or every year, every year. And so um, it is an extraordinary story, and I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, how we got there. But uh, before I do that, I'm going to talk a little bit about me and how I came to the FAA and got in this business. Uh, most of the time, I'm going to talk about how we have been on this safety journey at the FAA and uh, then some lessons learned of uh, how this is being applied more broadly across the aviation and aerospace industry, but also across other modes of transportation and other industries. So a little bit about me. Uh, we have been, uh, Ann and Matthew are both here. When Matthew was born, we started attending CCPC in 1996. And uh, in that period, I've served as a as a church school teacher, a deacon, an elder, and uh, but I was not raised a Presbyterian, I was raised a California Catholic. Um, and uh, we came to CCPC and Anne was raised Southern Baptist, and so we moved to Washington and did a few laps of Chevy Chase Circle and uh, ended up here as a uh, just a wonderful uh, congregation and very committed to things that we're committed about er, we're committed to uh, education and looking out for other people programs like tap programs like mission and so um, it's uh, it's been a great home for us uh, my background is uh, i was a political science major got a an mpa and I have, uh, I, I was not, you know, I, I never really thought of myself as a tech guy, but uh, the FAA hired me for that reason. What they were looking for was that somebody who had a background in technology, who understood how to deploy technology in a government setting. And in my previous life, I had worked for a company that was responsible for the development and deployment of the EasyPass system. Uh, transit smart card systems and other transportation technology applications. Um, I was not a conventional choice to head the FAA and that was a little bit controversial. Um, I am not a pilot. I had never worked for an airline, had never worked for an airport, never worked for a manufacturer. Of, uh, so in short, I knew nothing about <laughs> aviation, which was um, essentially the story. And, and the story of how I got there is I was hired as a technology guy to be deputy administrator. My predecessor resigned, and so I guess you could say I became the accidental administrator. But uh, the president saw fit to nominate me, and uh, I was confirmed by the Senate in January of 2013. 
in an, actually a rare thing. Uh, one of the things that is often noted is, is I was unanimously confirmed by the Senate, so clearly they did not know what they were getting into. <laughs> but, uh, but a little bit about me, I am a big believer in uh, what we call in aviation, CDM, collaborative decision making, and a lot of other industries uh, adopt that as well. But uh, the power of working with stakeholder groups to deal with real complex problems. And so uh, that's what I want to spend the majority of time talking about. A little bit about our industry. On any given day, somewhere between a million and a half and two million people are getting on airplanes. And they are thinking about a lot of things. Um, but the things they are thinking about are typically what the TSA line is going to be like. Uh, they might be thinking about why they had to pay that upgrade fee to get a seat assignment that was halfway decent. They may be wondering about uh, that meal cost. You know, how can the airlines charge you $10 for a plate of crackers? Um, but interestingly, they are not thinking about whether it is safe. Now, when I was growing up, um, I remember in every airport, there was a little life insurance kiosk <laughs> that when you would walk in to catch your flight, you could buy an insurance policy for that flight. And one of the things that uh, we in the industry are quite proud of is that we essentially put that industry out of business. They are still there, <laughs> but they are much harder to find. That's about 30,000 flights um, on a given day. Those are not all the flights. Those are the flights that our air traffic controllers are talking to. But the vast majority of the airspace over the United States is uh, what we call uncontrolled airspace, where uh, pilots fly based on old principles like see and avoid, sense and avoid, it is their responsibility to ensure that they're looking out for other aircraft. And a lot of general aviation, private pilots, that's how they fly. And we are in the midst of the safest period in aviation history. I mentioned we had zero fatalities in 2015. But I think the important thing is it's, it's been a lot of hard work and it wasn't always that way. Many of us remember one year in particular, 1996. 1996, uh, we had about 360 fatalities in the United States on commercial, in commercial aviation. Two very high-profile crashes, Value Jet 592 in the Florida Everglades, 110 people lost their lives. That was followed shortly thereafter by TWA, it says 80 there, it's 800. Uh, 230 people died when an aircraft exploded after departing New York's Kennedy Airport en route to France. At that time, uh, the industry had a very adversarial relationship with us, the FAA, as the regulator, which is not in and of itself unusual. Regulators are there to regulate industry, and that generally means that industry uh, isn't going to like everything. But it was adversarial in the sense that they told us we could only obtain information from airlines, from manufacturers, or anyone else in the system if we had a specific regulation requiring it. There was no culture of widely and commonly sharing information. 
and that was also a time where labor relations between the airlines and their employees uh, were not all that great as well, particularly airline pilots. Well, you know, 96 was a pretty bad year, and not surprisingly, uh, there was a significant uh, decline in public confidence, both in the industry, and a lot of people were asking the question that was the FAA correctly set up, or could it possibly address this, uh, this big problem, this lack of confidence uh, that was existing in the public there. There were two commissions that were put together to study this issue. The first was a White House Commission on Aviation Safety and Security, and they published a report that set an audacious goal. Reduce the commercial aviation fatality rate by 80% and do it in 10 years. And everyone laughed. No one believed that that was even in the realm of possibility, that there is a, a sense that things will always happen. And what you need to do is just assume that that, that is going to happen. That was followed by um, a congressionally chartered commission, the National Civil Aviation Review Commission. And they put forward a concept which was essentially a direction to the industry, which is you guys have got to figure out how to work together. And it tasked us to develop a comprehensive integrated safety plan, but more importantly, to develop performance measures and specific milestones of how we were going to hit that 80% reduction over a 10-year period. The solution that was put in place in 1997, the next year, was something called the Commercial Aviation Safety Team, or CAST. It's a, um, it's an industry government partnership. I'll talk a little bit more about uh, who the players are. But its major purpose was to share data so that airlines, aircraft manufacturers, the government, you know, would be in a position to share information about where there might be risk in the system and then to develop through a consensus process, decisions on how we're going to deal with those, how we're going to set priorities, and how we're going to address the risk in the system. Now, that's a really hard thing to do because, you know, think back, and no one trusted each other. And so why on earth would they voluntarily share proprietary business information with one another? Well, the way they sidestepped it back in 1997, it was pretty interesting, was Okay, everyone said, okay, we, we don't trust each other. I don't trust you, you don't trust me. But we both, all of us understand a contract. So what they put in place was a contract of the conditions under which data could be shared and what would happen if the contract was breached. And so, you know, essentially, they used the contract as the proxy to enable them to get to trusting one another. You know, so you think about it, a contract's uh, by definition an adversarial document because you, what you want to document is what everyone's responsibilities are. Looking back, 
everyone feels that it was the structure of the contract that enabled us to build trust, which is an interesting way of looking at that. Well, I mentioned it was a partnership. Um, on our side, it was, you know, the FAA, but we had a lot of other agencies of government that were involved in this as well. Many that deal with uh, aviation security as well as aviation safety. Uh, people that deal with uh, consumer advocacy kinds of issues. On the industry side, it was all of the usual alphabet trade associations, but then every one of the individual carriers and uh, all the manufacturers. Um, the important thing was we also brought in international participants. And what we really wanted to address was, uh, yes, we're an important market. We're something under half of the total global aviation market. But uh, there is a lot of growth taking place in other parts of the world. And aviation is very much a global industry. The strategy that was developed, I mentioned the principal purpose of putting CAST together was to develop data. And so it started with baby steps, which was let's share information on incidents or accidents. Something happens, we should share everything we know with others in the industry. And as that sharing takes place, others can make a determination. Are they seeing the same things? Or are they seeing different things? Or are they seeing things that might suggest uh, that um, you know, we need to go in a completely different direction? In fact, let me give you an example of that. Here in Washington, we have a lot of restricted airspace uh, just because of, you know, for security reasons. And um, there was one airline just in the last couple of years that found that their crews were on a consistent basis making an error on the departure from Reagan National Airport that was causing them to clip the restricted airspace that's there to protect the White House. Now, they made that data widely available in, and expressed that in their view, the problem was a particular pilot-aircraft combination that was suggesting to them they had a training problem. They needed to introduce new training for their pilots. When it was shared broadly with all the other carriers that use Reagan National Airport, what we determined was that you could not assign it to a particular aircraft pilot combination. Many were having this problem. And what it ultimately led us to do was to redesign that departure procedure for Reagan National Airport because effectively we had de designed a procedure that a very large percentage of pilots and, air and the flight management systems of aircraft could not fly. But that's what you get when you're actually putting data together with others um, across the industry. So what does the data tell us? What are the priorities that come on it? This is an important point. Consensus. CAS does not operate under majority rule. What it moves forward on are uh, programs for which there is broad consensus to address longstanding safety concerns. And then uh, what we do is we take those priorities and implement them here at home. 
as well as sharing them with our partners uh, throughout the world. So what's the result? Our goal was to reduce the fatal accident rate by 80% over 10 years. We reduced it by 83% over that first 10-year period. The objective was to work collaboratively with the industry to identify problems and implement solutions. Well, I'll come back to this point, but CAST has now become a model for collaborative decision-making across a wide variety of other modes of transportation and uh, different industries. This is a busy chart, and I'll walk through it, but this really illustrates. Uh, Part 121 is our regulatory framework for commercial aviation. 1996, Value Jet and TWA, 360 fatalities. September 11th, 2001. In 2006, we lost Comair uh, 5191, Lexington, Kentucky. Colgan Air, Buffalo, New York in 2009. Asiana 214, three people lost their lives in San Francisco. Uh, the interesting thing about Asiana was had that crash taken place back here in the early 1990s, very likely no one would have walked away from it. And that is because in the intervening period, as a result of the work that CAST has done, focusing on cabin design, flammability standards, and so forth, crashes that previously could not be survivable are now survivable. And so, because we're building better airplanes. So, so we've had a great run. Uh, we're in the midst of the safest period in aviation history. And interestingly, the experts feel that the major causes of commercial aviation accidents here in the U.S. have been mitigated. So how do you take a system that is already very, very safe and make it even safer? And that's the challenge that we've been working on over the, about the last five years. With so few accidents, we need to change how we look at that. It used to be that if there was, the way we improved aviation safety, and I talked about this in Asiana, was we'd study the last accident. We would determine what happened and then put something in place to ensure that accident or that effect could not happen again. But we're not having a, a lot of accidents. But we know there is risk in the aviation system. And so we've, we're moving to a different predictive approach, which is what data can we develop broadly across the industry, and what does that data tell us about where there might be risk and how do we prevent the accident from ever happening? Now, that is a much harder thing to do, and you need a lot more information to try to figure out where, what that data tells you. And most importantly, 
we need to amp up the sharing. We need to share that much more broadly across the whole industry. I'm not going to give you a test on this, but, <laughs> but essentially what we have put in place a few years ago is essentially a program of developing information broadly across the industry, sharing it broadly, analyzing it, mitigating it, monitoring how we're doing, and then, and then designing future mitigations, and then seeing how they work, and the process continues. We are constantly sharing information broadly across the aviation industry. And it may not necessarily, you know, on its face, look like a risk, but what we are finding is when you put all of this stuff together, we are able to identify things that represent risks in the aviation system that we want to address. So, um, I already talked about this. <laughs> we, uh, the focus is now looking forward, not backwards. Now, we think that combining information resources, data, gives us um, a much more accurate picture of what's going on in the aviation community. You know, think back to my example of the pilots missing a departure at National Airport. In one airline's view, they had a training problem, but when they put it broadly, you know, put it together with everybody else, we collectively recognized that we had a design problem. And so, you know, if you have data, it gets you much more much better problem analysis, much better decision making. And that's, um, I think, there's nothing wrong with that. It also helps all of us to allocate resources. But the other thing that has emerged out of this is if you talk to anyone in the aviation industry, they will make a very important point. And that is that as an industry, we do not compete on safety. We do not compete on safety. Anything related to safety is widely shared. Compare that with five-star safety ratings for automobiles. Effectively, the manufacturers are competing on safety. And I think everyone in the aviation industry will tell you that it is extremely important that we never lose that characteristic. I don't think we went into it with the idea we weren't going to compete on safety, but it evolved, and now we all see that as foundational to ensuring that aviation uh, continues to be safe. A couple of years ago, um, I asked our team to think about how do we codify all of this into a set of initiatives that we can continue to drive data sharing and assessment of risk. We're really good at acronyms. They came up with something called RBDM, Risk-Based Decision Making. <laughs> and um, in essence, what we're really trying to do is ensure that we have industry-wide processes we can use to share information, 
We have a commitment to systematically use it on a regular basis, and as a result, we get uh, much better informed uh, decisions coming out of the, uh, the back end of it. Right now, a lot of our focus is on training. Because of technology, we have been able to mitigate a lot of the technological challenges. And so it's, I guess it shouldn't be surprising, but we're finding that the weakest link in our safety system is the people. And the people's ability to uh, handle a wide variety of different challenges that get thrown at them. And so that's what's been behind things that you may have read that we've been doing, such as really beefing up pilot training uh, requirements, but also how pilots are trained. Or uh, a lot of focus on ensuring that crews have adequate rest before uh, they are responsible for taking a flight. So, you know, we are, we're on a journey and, you know, you can think that we've started with standardization, it's gotten us better decision making. It's caused us to evolve our oversight model and last year we, we had to uh, publish an order because everything you do at the FAA you publish by order, but the order was to collaborate. <laughs> Because what we want our uh, frontline inspectors to be doing is assessing intent of the, in of the entities that they're regulating. If someone's making an honest mistake and is sharing information about what they're doing about it broadly across the industry, that's a very different situation than another company that might be choosing to hide stuff or to cut corners on training or what have you. And so uh, what we, uh, in our oversight, we published what we call a compliance philosophy that is very focused on how do we strengthen and build partnerships, but also make sure that our frontline employees understand that we in the headquarters organization have their back. Because fundamentally, you know, people that are aviation safety inspectors, there's a lot of a cop mentality there. And they're very comfortable in worlds which are black and white. You know, uh, this is the rule, you either meet it or you don't. And we've given them guidance which now says, you know, we want you to look at data. And what that translates to, to an aviation safety inspector, is you're asking me to interpret shades of gray. And what if I get that wrong? How are you going to react? And so what we've been putting in place are the um, management tools and processes to help them understand we will have their back and that we can apply this much more broadly. Now there's, um, there's been a lot of interest uh, in this approach, right now we're applying it to a whole new regulatory challenge, which is how do we regulate unmanned aircraft, drones. Just to give you a sense of the growth of unmanned aircraft, um, we today, on the Registry of the United States, have about 570,000 drones 
drone operators registered, 570,000 recreational and commercial users. And we've only had that registry in place since mid-December of last year. To put that in perspective, on the aircraft registry of the United States, we have 320,000 aircraft, and it took us 100 years to get there. So this is moving um, at a significant pace. But when we put the registry together, what we did was we brought together the drone industry, the traditional aviation stakeholders, and in a 60-day period, we're able to design an online system that, uh, and make it effective that uh, is very easy to use. And uh, when it went live last December, I thought we got the highest compliment when a technology company in Silicon Valley said, um, this doesn't look like a government website. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so, you know, it's, what does all this mean? Partnerships are a good thing. You know, we tend to think, particularly, you know, in our current political discourse right now, that you need to be strong, you need to be confrontational. And it has certainly been our experience at the FAA and the aviation industry more generally that when we had that approach, we weren't able to solve a nagging public policy problem, which is how do you keep aviation safe? Now, you know, we have such a low fatality rate and we continue to try to way, find ways to drive risk out of it that this is being applied much more broadly in aviation. But interestingly, uh, we were asked to sit down with the CEOs of United States car companies and share with them what this approach is and how it's worked and how we got to where we are. We were called over to the Securities and Exchange Commission, an industry that does not, or a government agency that does not have a close working relationship with the financial industry that it regulates. Are there lessons that could be learned uh, through collaboration? And so, you know, the railroads, everybody, you know, are starting to adopt, or at least take a look at uh, where we've come from and uh, where we're going. But, you know, it, what I tell everyone is, yes, this partnership uh, approach works for aviation, but recognize that it is incredibly hard work. <laughs> I can't tell you how many meetings I've had with groups of companies, whole industries. Some of the toughest meetings are with uh, families of victims, you know, who have suffered air disasters. But it's extremely important because when you go to where people are and what is motivating them, I think that you can develop a much better understanding and have some empathy for what's the problem we're trying to solve. And it's by talking these things through that the solutions emerge. You know, the results are clearly uh, worth it, but we can't be, you know, uh, we, we can't sit back and assume we've got the problem solved. 
Ours is an industry that continues to evolve, and uh, there are new risks and challenges that present themselves each and every day uh, in the aviation system. And it's our job uh, to ensure that the next time you go to the airport, you're not looking for that insurance kiosk. That uh, you'll continue to worry about uh, how long the TSA line is going to be. <laughs> so anyway, thank you very much. I'd be happy to uh, answer any questions you have. Libby. They're incredibly receptive of it. it. Different regions are in different parts of the world. Uh, different regions are in kind of different places. Europe has a very, very mature um, aviation industry, and Europe also has a um, kind of a common regulatory framework for aviation uh, that's done Europe-wide. And so uh, a lot of our – Europe we ha have probably the closest relationship with, uh, which is uh, we meet several times a year to share data, share information. Um, on the manufacturing side, we have a uh, four-party agreement that is really focused with the major manufacturing countries. That's the United States, Canada, Europe, and Brazil. And those, uh, you know, where we're sharing a lot of data and information, um, and we do that uh, a couple of times a year as well. Far East and Middle East are growing very, very rapidly. And here what we see is a split between the maturity and the sophistication of the companies versus their regulator. And so, uh, you know, what I mean by that is uh, we've been doing a lot of work with Thailand, um, uh, just as one example. Thai Airways, they're a member of the Star Alliance, a partner of United Airlines, a very well-established, uh, well-capitalized company that has great process business processes and techniques. The Thai Civil Aviation Authority, our counterpart, uh, we have found doesn't meet the basic international standards to properly oversee the industry. And so we've been doing a lot of work with our counterparts in Thailand to provide technical support and assistance to them in order to ensure that they're able to do that. And so, you know, different things in uh, different parts of the world. Uh, we have a big, big focus on Africa. We've had an initiative uh, for a while called Safe Skies for Africa. Uh, right now, um, we're doing a lot of work with Kenya, South Africa, Nigeria, big markets uh, with a lot of interest in air travel uh, between the United States and, and those places. And that's actually uh, just, you know, one small point. You know, we, we do this voluntarily. It's part of, um, you know, what I think is extremely important, which is showing global leadership. But uh, our principal focus is on markets that our carriers want to serve and or where there's interest in that country in providing service to the U.S. Because, you know, fundamentally, legally, our, our responsibility is to the U.S. industry and to U.S. passengers no matter where they're traveling. So it's driven by that. Yeah.
No, aviation. Yeah, aviation is, no question it's different. And, and you know, fundamentally, we as a country are only going to promulgate regulations that we as a people are willing to support. And we as a people have decided that we have a very low tolerance for aviation disasters. And so there is this expectation that someone, um, it's in, in the United States it's the FAA, is going to ensure that the system is safe. And we don't have that same standard in, uh, in other modes of transportation. I think that um, I wouldn't expect that anyone in public transit, railroads, or even the highways would adopt everything that we are doing, nor should they. I mean, the industries are very different. But, you know, when we sat down with the car companies, what they were really interested in was, are there some lessons that could be learned? And the one thing that they really focused on was hearing three different airline CEOs say we will never compete on safety. You know, which was really an aha moment for, you know, some CEOs of some pretty important companies. And so if safety is our highest business, why are we making it a competitive factor was where that discussion went. And I don't know whether that'll go anywhere. Um, and, you know, our counterpart agency, um, made the comment that they had, uh, you know, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration made the comment that maybe they were somewhat culpable of that too because they broadly promote the safety ratings <laughs> of car companies. And so, you know, it's one example. Is there a lesson that you can learn uh, from that? I think in the case of the discussions we've had with the financial industry, it's they were very interested in the fact that we started out with a very adversarial relationship and that the way we established trust was to basically enter into a contract rather than trying to say, trust us. You know, that it might be an, an interesting roadmap of how you can use something that they're, that they're comfortable with and they're used to to achieve a broader objective. So, yeah, but they are very different. It's kind of all of the above, but it starts with, um, with our counterparts. We have um, a number, we, we, we've started to establish a number and, and are doing more of it, just regular meetings where you bring everyone together. Uh, with the Europeans, that's like a couple of times a year where, and we go back and forth and they, they always take us to Paris and we go to Cleveland, um, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, it's, and they're pretty intensive, you know, multi-day, sometimes week-long sessions. And they have, uh, what is important is you have a specific topic. You know, it cannot be a meeting to talk about how we cooperate. The, it's gotta be, we want to address this problem. You know, so, you know, right now, a big one is cybersecurity on the manufacturing side. That how do we ensure that as uh, overseers of the manufacture of aircraft, it, that are increasingly technologically dependent, that there are the appropriate controls and, uh, and so forth in, in place. And so it's a lot of information sharing of what we are seeing, uh, what they are seeing, um, how systems are being engineered, 
Um, and you know, sometimes, not to get into the weeds, but uh, you know, when we oversee manufacturing, since aviation is an industry that is constantly evolving, it's not like you can promulgate a regulation and anticipate everything that's going to happen. And so sometimes it's sitting down uh, with our counterparts saying, we are thinking of addressing this evolution of this new system in this way. Would you consider doing it that way as well? Because it's really important for the carriers that they have some degree of standardization in different parts of the world. Yeah, so it's, it, it's a lot of that. It's, it, it's, a, you know, it's, it's a great deal of uh, sharing across, um, you know, and in all the ways that you talked about. Yeah, Florence. We can, in fact, the blue line shows a little bit of that. The blue line shows what we would have expected it to be based on historical data, you know, year over year there. And so that's kind of an average. Um, and as you can see, it's kind of flat to slightly declining. But um, I think that what we are struck by was just the gap, what the 20-year trend looks like. September 11th, you know, uh, horrible, you know, situation, that we, you know, it was a security breach. And there was nothing about pilot training or the performance of the aircraft that was a contributor to that. You know, historically, everything before that, it was much more on the aircraft, on the pilot, you know, and, uh, you know, was there something in the system that uh, was causing uh, the problem that, that caused the problems that you have. But overall, you know, the important point is, you know, these are just actual numbers of uh, what we're seeing, but the industry is also, has also grown quite dramatically. We have a lot more flights and a lot more passengers at the same time that in absolute numbers, we have much smaller numbers of fatalities. There is, and um, we ha we've actually had a mandatory drug and alcohol testing program in the U.S. for quite a while now. Other countries have been slower to adopt that, and um, particularly in, in as a result of just even the last few months, we're seeing a lot of activity in Europe really to uh, try to strengthen their drug and alcohol testing uh, regime. Drug and alcohol testing is something that's really interesting, though, because uh, interesting in, in, in the context of a challenge that, that
The principal impediment to it in many countries is what their laws are related to privacy. And that is, uh, you know, which is not a problem that we have, um, but we, ha we experience it when, for example, a lot of our companies might have a, a repair station located in another country. And as under our regulation and under their corporate practice, they might have a mandatory drug testing program which they are unable to implement in a given country just because, you know, where, the, where their law might provide only for them to uh, do drug testing if there is reason to believe that uh, there might be a problem there. So, you know, this is something that uh, we're continuing to focus on. But it do, you know, the point you're making is a really important point, and that is that increasingly the challenges we're seeing in aviation safety are on the human side, not on the technological side, not on the system side, and that's going to get a lot more focus. Elsie? Yeah, uh, first of all, on the pilot, um, the pilot training stuff, and Colgan, the 2009 crash in Buffalo, really uh, placed a significant focus um, on this whole question of pilot training, and that was the impetus behind the rule that we put into effect last year. Essentially, what happened in Colgan is you had ver a very experienced crew. They had a lot of hours, and when confronted with inclement weather, and a situation, they did exactly the opposite of what they should have done. And the determination that we and many other experts made was that the training was insufficient, simulator training was insufficient to actually confront the pilot with, this was an incredibly rare set of events, but what would you do in that circumstance? Instead, we were training more on the pieces of it. How do you get an airplane out of a stall? How do you deal with inclement weather? How do you deal with uh, loss of visibility and so on down the line? And in Colgan, they were dealing with all of that, all of that at once, plus the crew was pretty tired. And so that's what has, you know, it, I guess um, I want to go, going back four years, we've done flight duty and rest, first officer qualifications, and pilot training. All of those are very focused on how do we up the uh, qualifications and uh, the proficiency and performance of pilots. We have one more big one that we're trying to uh, deal with and it's consistent with our data sharing approach and that is having consolidated records uh, of everything related to, group to a pilot. It's kind of our version of HIPAA and it's about as difficult, but uh, we're working our way through it. Uh, comfort animals on planes. This is um, where we kind of get into what's a shared regulatory requirement of us versus the Department of Transportation. Uh, before the airline industry was deregulated in the mid-70s, uh, there was another aviation agency called the Civil Aeronautics Board, and they regulated air fares and everything related to the consumer side of, uh, of aviation. 
We deregulated the industry in the 70s. There were some residual functions that were retained, and those are housed at the Department of Transportation, not us. And the idea that Congress had at that time is you want the FAA focused only on safety, and you want somebody else worrying about lost baggage and on-time uh, performance and all of that kind of stuff. Now, what you're identifying, Elsie, is that where that starts to cross over. When does a passenger convenience start to become something that represents a safety hazard? The basic uh, threshold that has to be met is that you have to be able to evacuate a plane in 90 seconds pulling the emergency exits. You know, that's, and if they can test that that can be done, which is why they limit numbers of animals on aircraft, then, um, then from a consumer standpoint, then it becomes more a consumer issue than a safety issue. Personally, I happen to agree with you. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I've been on planes where there's been a big dog sitting on my feet, and, um, and it's certainly not comfortable. You know, I've, I can convince myself that it uh, is probably not unsafe, but, um, but I think this larger question of passenger comfort is something that I'm observing. You know, the pendulum swinging a little back, you know, a little bit toward maybe we, maybe a little more regulation would be a good thing there. Yeah. Okay, Lynn. It's time to go. <laughs> I can hang around if people have other questions. Okay. Thank you.